Hello everyone, hope you're keeping safe. This is Krista Tsuraki, co-CEO at NVR, and you're listening to another expert episode at the Energy Hall of Fame, featuring Diana Kaisi, Executive Director, coming from Lebanon Oil and Gas Initiative, uh, or LOGI as we all call it. We will be debating the hydrocarbon and energy future of our beloved Lebanon, Logi's strategic role in it, talking about transparency, the ITI and her role in it, covering one of our industry's hottest topics. So let's all now mentally travel to Beirut and learn more about the country's challenges and opportunities within the energy sector, as well as how you can work with, uh, with Logi, what kind of information you can uh, receive from them and why uh, it has become one of our favorite NGOs um, in the sector. But first, let me welcome my co-host, Madalena. Hello, Mada. Thank you, Krisa. Good morning. And uh, Diana, it's really a great, great pleasure to have you with us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Krisa and Madeleine. <laughs> <laughs> Let's kickstart. Um, you know, Diana, Diana, we know each other for a very long time, and uh, I'm very uh, excited to have you here so why, why don't you introduce us first to yourself? What has your experience been uh, before entering Logi? What drove you to get in such an important organization? And what is your role, your current role in, uh, in the NGO? Absolutely. Thank you, Krisa. Indeed, we do know each other for some time now. Actually, my whole saga started out in 2011, back when I was just going over the job description of the regional coordinator for Publish What You Pay for the Middle East, North Africa. Back then, my interest was basically um, very uh, general and natural resources, governance of institutions. But I never tried before that to deep dive into the whole issue from the perspective of uh, just uh, uh, governance of the whole sector, taking into consideration people's rights and justice and just uh, natural resource uh, revenue distribution. So I started uh, actually uh, with Publish What You Pay back in 2011 when I applied. I got the job. I was responsible for the coordination of all efforts of NGOs in the Middle East, North Africa. I did that for six years. In, in the middle of my career with them. I was also tasked to work with civil society organizations in the Asia-Pacific uh, uh, region, specifically in Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, and, and Philippines. So what did I? What was I responsible for? Making sure that we consolidate the effort of all civil society organizations at the national level, bringing them to form a coalition so they can become a, an influential and effective stakeholder when we are speaking about about the good management of natural resources. That's what I did for six and a half years with Publish What You Pay. Uh, Publish What You Pay is a global organization that works on the governance of oil, gas, and mining. It has over a thousand NGOs under its uh, bigger umbrella forming this uh, very unique coalition. Now, in 2017, I was approached by one of the co-founders, and he is the president of the Lebanese Oil and Gas Initiative, uh, George Sassin. And he said, you know, Diana, uh, I was back then just serving on the advisory board of Logi, uh, being very interested on uh, and having on uh, being part of this idea that started in 2014 in Lebanon, basically having an organization that would look onto making sure that, that the role of civil society in Lebanon is strengthened as an oversight body, a watchdog when it comes to the development of the oil and gas sector in Lebanon. And he said back then, you know, Diana, we admire your work. We would like to have to further expand Logi by having, uh, you know, an executive team led by you if it is possible. Uh, we want to diversify our funding platform and we just want to make uh, Logi that, you know, organization that really works on the governance of the oil and gas sector in Lebanon from a civil society perspective. And this is when I said yes in 2017, and I moved to become the uh, executive director of Logi. I was handed a good idea with uh, sound strategic perspectives, and I unfolded that into a full-fledged organization. We are a team of six now with two part-timers, and we work on different pillars. Of course, we can go into that later on if you'd like, but we are now 
looked at as the single most influential organization when it comes to governance of the oil and gas sector in Lebanon. It's a very interesting what you're saying. Uh, you know, Lebanon is a very difficult country in terms of uh, transparency, in terms of uh, having a clear picture of what's currently happening behind the scenes. It has also some, some risk factors that, uh, you know, you cannot uh, avoid talking about. So it must have been very interesting for you. Of course, it was a natural transition. This is what I hear, you know, working for an organization, a global organization that was working with the um, NGOs, going to the NGO of uh, of the country, because I think it's one of the most important uh, NGOs, maybe with Impact Lebanon. I think uh, as a foreigner, these are the two initiatives I always see uh, in front of me. So it was a natural transition. Can you give us a more, a bigger, a bit, a better understanding for those that are not aware of uh, of the NGO? What you know, you're currently doing your main objectives, how the organization works, um, a bit more about the founders, because I know both, uh, but more I, I know Karen very well, and I think have a very interesting uh, background. So, can you give us more details on your objectives? I think uh, the the basis of the success of Logi really lies in the co- uh, the three co-founders' vision. Back then in 2014, and and these are from the youth. Let's remember these are the young people of of Lebanon. Three young people, so a, a lady and two gentlemen, uh, Karen Ayat, George Sassin, and Jeremy Arbid. Their interest was lied in just creating this entity of Logi that works on making sure, as I said, to strengthen civil society's engagement. I'm going to go in a second in in how. Uh, they envisioned doing this and how we strategically positioned Logi later on. Uh, but the background of, and I can start with the uh, one of the co-founders and the current president of, of Logi, George Sassin, is an energy policy. He is Kennedy graduate, school uh, graduate, and he had uh, he has extensive experience in working with multinational companies on, in the energy sector, uh, such as GE, for example. Now he is uh, currently heading an initiative that aims at uh, supporting all the startups regarding renewable energy. So he has a vast experience in policy setting when it comes to uh, energy in general, not just the oil and gas sector. Karen, of course, is a journalist and so is uh, Jeremy Arbid. They have vast experience in working on unfolding also uh, all the information related to the oil and gas sector. Uh, Karen used to work for Natural Gas, of course, one of the known sources and media sources when it comes to the uh, uh, energy sector, the oil and gas sector. Their experience uh, I believe, uh, yani very humbly, all three of them, it was like an alignment of stars because between the know-how of the, you know, the technical know-how with George and the network and the outreach that both Karen and Jeremy had, it was a formula made for success. So when they contacted me, it was a no-brainer for me. It was just translating all that I knew horizontally to a very uh, more in-depth implementation of what I would really coordinate with other organizations to do. So I just transferred all the best practices, bundled them up and put them into a strategic work plan that took, uh, you know, Logi from one step to another. And very, very concretely, how did we do that? Uh, we tried, you know, the oil and gas sector, when you want to work on it from a governance perspective, there are there is the whole nine yards. You can work on like, across the oil the extractive chain from the subsoil resources to when they turn into sustainable uh, development, taking into consideration where Lebanon is when it comes to the nascent oil and gas sector, we decided to focus on four main pillars. The first being the legislative pillar. So all everything that is related to the policy setting, to the legal framework surrounding the oil and gas sector. We would talk about all the decrees, the, the draft ones and the ones that are there. Are they still fit for purpose? What is it that we need to do? What is the legal framework that needs to be in place to have a sound, corrupt-free immune oil and gas sector in Lebanon. So that's the first pillar that we worked on. The second pillar that we worked on was the environmental component. Actually, this is the first pillar we started with. So we all know that there is a huge environmental impact accompanying the oil and gas sector, especially in the exploration and production phases and the upstream phase. And for us, it was a golden opportunity just to make sure that all uh, mitigation tools are there to make sure that we are protecting our environment in Lebanon. It's the weakest link 
Lebanon, if anything, has a lot of, of sad stories to tell when it comes to its environment and all the impacts that have been happening, not from the oil and gas sector, from other sectors. We had, you know, let's if you remember back in 2014 when Logi was being established, we had the big garbage crisis. So, you know, talking about the environment was a no-brainer for us. So we wanted to make sure that all the tools were there, that uh, the environmental impact of such a heavy sector was really mitigated for by all stakeholders, the least of which is the government. Of course, we needed to have to see that the civil society played an important factor. The third pillar we focused on was value creation. At the end of the day, what does this all mean if there is no economic benefit for the Lebanese? So we wanted to ensure that there is a fair deal that was taking place, that at the end of the day, this deal, if it was indeed fair, it would be translated through its fiscal terms into a sustainable economic model for the Lebanese. We wanted to make sure that the Lebanese currently during the exploration and production phase were really benefiting in a sustainable manner from all the goods and services that should be provided at this stage. Employment, we looked into it. So this was all under the value creation. How best would the Lebanese benefit from this sector economically and uh, in a fair way, just way, and of course, in a sustainable manner. Now, the last component that we worked on, but of course, not the least, not in the least, uh, least important, of course, it was as important as the others, was strengthening civil society's engagement across all of these components that I talked about. Basically, how do we make sure that we use global initiatives such as the Extractive Industry Transparency Initiative, the EITI, to make sure that civil society organizations in Lebanon sit around the table, uh, you know, equally across the government and the companies to discuss national priorities, to make sure that they are part of the decision-making process when it comes to the oil and gas sector development in Lebanon. So these are strategically our four four components. Every single aspect that we see we are working on since 2014 revolves around these four pillars and, of course, under this umbrella. And, and Diana, because this is intense work in many countries, let alone in a country like Lebanon, that, uh, you know, it's not it's not a secret that it's been suffering uh, from corruption uh, in all levels um, for many years, so especially in a, such a sensitive area that has the, the public's attention, such as the natural resources. How is it w- working in such a difficult and complex uh, country as an NGO? It has definitely its challenges, uh, my dear friend. Of course, we cannot turn a blind eye to the fact that we are working in one of the, if you want to look at the Corruption Perception Index recently uh, issued by Transparency International, we ranked 149 out of 180 countries. It means that we are, you know, just swimming in a pool of corruption. Now, the big challenge was how do we ensure uh, that we protect if I want to, to to use a metaphor, this gem in Alibaba's cave, you know, it's, it was a real challenge for us. But, but we really, we really tried to do that through these four components, and we thought that the most important aspect for us would be to really focus on the uh, civil society's role, uh, you know, through the legal framework first of all. If you look at all the practices or all the past experiences of countries, you would see that the first entry point for corruption to the sector would be through the legal framework, through the contracts. So we wanted to make sure that everything was very quite transparent and that we had a part in analyzing what the country such as Lebanon would be signing on. So that was our first entry point. Okay, let's not talk about transparency. I'm just going to tap into the uh, the environment uh, as well because uh, I was not planning to ask any question, but uh, I think it's also important to to analyze how this all transparency, corruption, public opinion, the demands of the public and their uh, participation and engagement. How the, is Logi uh, enforcing it in to to the government in terms of the environmental protection? Because that's also a very big subject for for Lebanon. I'm not even referring to the blast. I'm I'm referring to the everyday uh, life. It's it's mental. You know, it could be a very clean. I'm um, being Greek. I know very much how tourism, you know, can um, can help and boost an economy. And I think Lebanon, you know, could be a very beautiful touristic uh, destination. 
So uh, what is your opinion on, on the matter? Do you think that the corruption and the, the transparency is very much needed in, uh, in, this, in the environmental sector as well? And how can we move forward in such a beautiful country? Absolutely. You know, we were very practical when we approached this component, especially. So we started from what was available. And one thing that we insist on as Logi is that any approach we do to any subject should be fact-based. So what we do is, first of all, and this is what we did with the environment, then we did with the legal framework, with the value creation component, every single item. What we do is, first of all, review what is available. And this is what we did with the environmental component. We looked at the back then released strategic environmental assessment. It was eight volumes, 800 pages of a lot of technical stuff that was there. We noted that the strategic environmental assessment is one tool that uh, civil society citizens need to be aware of because it really tells you what to expect from the oil and gas sector exploration. You know, what are the economic, social, and at one point political repercussions and impact of such a big sector being implemented or offshore drilling happening. Now, when we started working in 2017, when I joined Logi, we had noticed that back in 2011, the government had released the strategic environmental assessment all 800 pages, eight volumes, and they were published, but nobody did anything about it. Nobody uh, attempted to look at them, review them, see what was really, you know, what are these eight volumes telling us? So the first thing we did, and as I said, this is always a fact-based approach that we use. We asked a, a consultant to work with us so they can explain to us what these eight volumes said. And uh, he, uh, the, the consultant, came, the international consultant came back to us and said, you know, uh, this is poor study. It needs to be redone. It basically doesn't say much. And if you want to use it as a tool for people to oversee or to understand the impact, it's not a good tool. So and here comes the, the unique approach of Logi. We did not immediately revert to pure advocacy campaigning and bashing at the government saying that they need to redo it. What we did was actually we placed ourselves as the interlocutors between the government, civil society and the companies. So we went to the Lebanese Petroleum Administration, the companies, and we said, you know, we'd like to meet with you. We did this exercise. So we reviewed the strategic environmental impact. We have something to say about it and we'd like to set up a meeting. And it was in that meeting meeting that we explained scientifically our feedback on that. We, got, we flew the consultant over. We had also some local consultants with us, environmentalists, and we said, you know, we know that you don't think it's a good one, apparently. And this is why we also think it's not a good impact assessment. And we, we would love, we want you to repeat it because this is a tool that people need to be able to use and understand. And, you know, after two months of back and forth, and this is where it was commendable because there was a political will to listen to civil society, at least at that uh, moment in time, the answer came positively. And this is where we started in, uh, you know, they said, yes, you're right. We need to repeat it and uh, we will do that. But we really needed to look at other stakeholders to support the government in doing it, funding, basically. And this is where Logi Logist strength started emerging. We talked to different stakeholders, the, the European Union. We talked to civil society organizations. This is where we started lobbying and supporting the idea of repeating it. And in six months' time, we succeeded in getting the government to say yes, the European Union to support it. And then we started moving uh, towards training civil society organizations on, on this very important tool, saying, you know, the government is going to repeat it. They have contacted a company need to do it, you need to get ready because once this comes out, you need to understand how to use it. The government and the European Union is going to spend money on it and we need how to we need to know how to use it. And then we pushed the government to do also, and it is actually there also by law, but we asked the government to implement this law to do a round of public consultations and we help them when it comes to the strategic environmental assessment. So what what's the basic thing that we concluded from this? We set two precedents that we later on adopted as our own methodology. One, we started from a fact-based research, and this is how we proceeded into every single activity we did. So this is why you see Logi has a lot of scientific briefs, all concretely based on revision of what is there and then coming up with smart recommendations. And then we spoke with all stakeholders. And this is the, the unique multi-stakeholder approach that we have adopted along the way, and which later on allowed us to sit 
on the International Board of the EITI, whom I currently sit and represent civil society at large on the, on the board of the EITI, the Extractive Industry Transparency Initiative. Logi does not talk to only civil society. We are the interlocutors that speak to everybody. We speak to governments, to parliament, uh, we speak to regulatory authorities, to civil society organizations, and yes, we speak to companies. We are equidistant from everybody. We propose always to, to offer a platform where everybody can come sit and talk rationally about stuff and come up with concrete recommendations. And because of this, we were able to push for many, many successes. We got the contracts released, you know, the first East Med country to publish their own contracts, the, the, the signed ones. We have beneficial ownership now implemented at the subcontractual level. We have developed the first financial model uh, ever to be released, uh, you know, in the MENA country because of the contracts that were uh, published. And of course, we have the strategic environmental assessment now redone. This is basically our philosophy. This is how we work. This is the modus operandi for Logi. We don't just sit and talk to our own. We, we talk to everybody. And I think this is the reason why we have been successful and we have been labeled as credible and trustworthy. Indeed, indeed, Diana, and also your experience with the EITI. I'm, I'm a, by the way, I'm a huge fan. You already know that we have discussed this in the past, but I am a huge fan of the of the initiative, and I think that uh, it should not be a matter of um, just having it in a few selected countries that, of course, you know, uh, deal with uh, and have issues of transparency and and corruption. But I think it should be implemented in in way more countries that uh, don't um, look the part. But you know, there might be. Uh, the need for such an initiative just to, to track the changes, just to, to track and monitor the, the industry. So I, I wanted to ask you in terms, uh, going back to Lebanon and to what's currently happening uh, post-blast, right? I want us to also understand whether Logi will be involved in uh, the energy sector as a whole or only on the oil and gas sector. So in terms of the, the policies, uh, we had the blast. It was a terrible moment uh, for the country and the citizen. I'm, I'm sure you're still recovering. But what needs, what policies need to change in order to avoid such big crises, not just environmental, but in general? And how has the blast impacted the energy sector during COVID times? Where are we right now? Basically, what we well, let, definitely, and I'm not just uh, you know uh, putting a, a discovery out there when we say pre-blast uh, Lebanon is definitely not like post-blast Lebanon. Things have changed, priorities have shifted. We discovered there is a terrible, deadly weakness in our governance system. We're still uh, not at all recovering from it. And this is basically what we have been saying the whole time. There is now a division between, you know, all the ruling authority and the rest of the of the people. There is absence of information that, you know, it was dangerous to the point that led to the to the blast. Regardless of the many theories behind, you know, the blast itself, whether it was triggered, there is there is a fact. The blast happened. It was while the government, uh, you know, under the, the, the eyes, the watch of the, the government, Government watch. Apparently, they didn't do a good job about it. And even after the blast, there was a complete loss of who does what and who picks up the pieces. Now, for the oil and gas sector, uh, this momentarily pushed it a little bit on the back burner. The oil and gas sector development was not pushed to the back to the you know back burner simply because of the blast but you know it we were caught in the perfect storm we had covered we had a collapsing melting global economy we had our own economy that is completely melted down and we had the blast so it was really we're caught in the perfect storm which now makes it seem that companies at the time that the, for the um, time being are not regarding exploration in the east med and I'm not even talking about the rest of the globe as a priority or even, you know, exploration as a priority at all. There, I'll, I'll give you one example. Total alone has admitted that by in 2020, they have suffered 7.2 billion US dollars in losses. Now, this is not a, a small number. This means that they are rethinking their whole budget. And yes, they did a lot of budget cuts. And yes, of course, it trickled down uh, to the impact on Lebanon and, of course, other countries in the East Mediterranean. I know that you and I can discuss this at length for, and for a long time, but how did this really impact uh, uh, Lebanon? <laughs> uh, it impacted it uh, in many ways. 
Now, now we what are we doing? We, you know, last week we were just in conversation with Total. We, we, you know, I'm very happy to say, and we were discussing the issue. Now, Total has not completely withdrawn from Lebanon. It has postponed exploration till 2022, you know, because of all the situation. And not just in Lebanon. Of course, we see this in Cyprus and in other areas that Total is present. I'm just citing Total because it's the company that is currently heading the consortium working in Lebanon. Now, what does this mean for Lebanon? Should we just sit and wait and, you know, count beads? Not, of course not. We can do a lot of things. Now, one of the concrete things we started doing directly after the blast was look at, again, the legal framework. And for Lebanon, there is a law that was passed in 2004, and it was the Major Accident Prevention Regulatory Authority Law. Believe it or not, we have a law that mandates, we have signed an agreement, you know, that mandates that we have a major regulatory, major accident regulatory, prevention regulatory authority. We call it MAPRA. And basically, it means that we have this regulatory authority who would be tasked in ensuring that no major accidents happen. Now, what are we doing as Logi? We're opening the lid on this one. We already did three to four webinars. We're looking with different stakeholders, the government, the different ministries to see how can we actually start implementing this law. Now, this is one law that will help us avoid future catastrophes. This is a regulatory authority whose sole job would be, and had it been there since 2000, and four would be to prevent accidents such as the ones that happened in the, the port. Now, this is one of the things that we're looking at. Another thing that we're looking currently at, of course, and we're, we're, we want to make sure that people are involved, and it has a very recent, now I can cite, uh, you know, it rose up back to the surface again, is looking at the NOSCOP, the National Oil Spill Contingency Plan. Now, you know, Lebanon now in 2021, this is called the extra time. We're sitting on the bench waiting for the energy sector to unfold globally so it will trickle down to us. But we said we need to have some things straightened up. We already underwent, we went through the first drilling, which happened last year. And the drilling that happened, we can talk about it later on, revealed some weaknesses not catastrophic, you know. It's very common for a country that goes for drilling for the very first time because you're putting the whole system to test to see where some of the way of the links are weak. And one of the components was the environmental component, the uh, issuing of permits. We are revisiting this now. We want to make sure that we have a robust legal framework, that we have the uh, uh, laws and decrees that are quite harmonious so as not to have wasted time and suddenly departments, divisions in uh, uh, the Ministry of Environment or regulatory authorities with kudos to them for the jobs they're doing, stand still and say, so who is it up to to issue the permit? Is it me? Is it them? Is it, you know, and this is what happened and caused some delay. We're revisiting this. And this is what we're encouraging the government to do that. Now, part of this is looking also at the National Oil Spill Contingency Plan. When we looked at it at the beginning, you know, it's good on paper. But there is a lot to say about the clear division, a clear division of, uh, of roles and responsibilities between the different ministries that are there and the Lebanese Petroleum Administration. We are now producing a citizen guide that will help us all understand who does what in a time of crisis? And I want to revert now to something that have re recently happened the past three days. There is an oil spill that is traveling from Israel to Lebanon. And you know what the big discussion is now in the South? What do we do? What's the role of the municipality? Should What are NGOs supposed to do? If they pick up you know, the, the, uh, all the, the waste, uh, what do they do with them? No, no, no. This shouldn't be happening. You know, this is the time, the year when we will be spending it with passion because I have a team that is really committed to this particular component saying, you know, we were lucky. No accident happened, no matter how minimal it would be uh, during the first dr drilling. We don't want this. You know, we don't want to take any more chances. Apparently, we're jinxed. Okay, so let's not take this chance and make sure that 2021 is spent. Make it, we are concretely closing all these loose ends. And this is the thing we're working on now. Now, two more things just to close on the on the policies, because you raised this up. This year, we're, we're looking at very important policies that also came out because of the blast. It's the public cons the need for a public consultation 
process. And we have gone ahead and developed a public consultation law. We're trying to get it endorsed now by members of parliament. There is a good atmosphere for that. We're having next week our first closed meeting with them. So we'll get, we'll, we'll get at least eight signatures and we'll present it to parliament. It's a very clear process. Nothing now gets in uh, to the parliament uh, for discussion, a law or hopefully a decree later on with the government without being processed first and receiving feedback from the people, the citizens in a very organized manner. So this is the law we work on with the International Center for Non-For-Profit Law. And the second one, now we are advocating for open parliamentary practices. So the open parliamentary practices that we're looking for is basically opening up this black box that we have that led indirectly, but I do put the blame somehow on the on them, they are part of the process, the parliament, on having the blast. You know, we need to understand what our members of parliament are doing inside the parliament. What are they working on in the parliamentary sessions? These committees, the parliamentary sessions need to be open. The, the voting system needs to be disclosed. There is no more working behind closed doors for us. And this is what we are really now hitting the ground, talking to different stakeholders to have it uh, adopted full-fledged. Basically, maybe this is a not so brief answer to your query. This was an amazing answer, Diana, because we see that from many different fronts, you're attacking some issues, right, to that kind of drag an industry or even a nation and doesn't allow it to, to move that efficiently. And Chris and I were speaking before about exactly the oil spill that you mentioned here. And uh, yeah, it's always preferred that we work on a prevention plan instead of a reactive one once it happens. So we are more prepared each time that there is something going on, right? Diana, I wanted to exactly speak about the, the drilling campaign that you mentioned, because this was also spoken about in one of our virtual events, when we had someone speaking about the potential in Lebanon and even mentioning the licensing round, right? That now we know that it's not moving as fast. But maybe we go back to this topic and try to look into the licensing round and see what is your position in terms of the results, what has been achieved so far, how fast do you think that this can move forward from now on. And by the way, if we should expect some success story or if it's not going to be that bright, uh, probably. What is your take? We, we actually, we went ahead and analyzed the, the, the first licensing round. We had around 10 comments about it. And we can I can tell you from the beginning, for the first licensing round, it followed a lot of good practices. And here I have to be very open and transparent in what I'm saying. They followed a, a lot of good practices. Uh, of course, things can be always enhanced to become better, but I cannot honestly say that uh, there was uh, any form of corruption or bad uh, handling in that. Of course, we can always uh, aim to have uh, a number of things improved, such as in the subcontracting process, giving more time um, uh, for the subcontracted, uh, maybe also looking at, uh, had we had uh, the legal framework revision, um, discrepancies that were addressed and we noted in some of the, of the decrees, but these were, by the way, later on uh, addressed and fixed for the second licensing round. We had some issues regarding the report itself that was issued by the Lebanese Petroleum Administration to the minister, uh, you know, uh, we want we wanted to be more transparent, a summary, uh, a more comprehensive summary about it regarding uh, the submitted proposals would have been definitely welcome. Of course, we are always encouraging the Lebanese Petroleum Administration to take more the initiative of reaching out to civil society and briefing them. We know that they always say yes, and they are relentlessly uh, joining us on on all platforms and other organizations as well. But we wanted to be more of an initiative led by them to have that component of outreach, constant outreach to, to civil society and briefing them on, on what is happening. These are, if you, if you notice, these are marginal comments that we have for the uh, past licensing round. Now for the, this, the current licensing round, which was postponed till the end of this year, it was postponed three times. I'll, I'll, I'll be very frank. We know we are quite aware, and this has been hinted at and, and at one point said directly by uh, some members of the board of the Lebanese Petroleum Administration. We are not going to go into the negotiations for the second licensing round with similar conditions as before. The time has changed. There is an economic meltdown. The appetite of the, we know that the appetite of the investor has changed. I see it all over the world. Even current contracts are being renegotiated. We need to be realistic. But this is the important part. 
for, you know, how low are you willing to go? That's the basic line that we need to see. Uh, this should be done with the utmost of oversight. Uh, we are going to look at the old contracts. We are not going to have the same contracts that we used for the second licensing round being proposed again with the same terms. They are going to change. And this is where it is very important to have the conversation out quite frankly, because this sector is existing in an atmosphere of, of absence of trust. No stakeholder trusts the other. The companies are aware that they're working in a very corrupt country. You know, that's a fact. I cannot change it. The government is being complete. You know, it's, it's uh, under question for a number of its, uh, uh, you know, uh, activities in other sectors. We have the Lebanese Petroleum Administration that needs to defend its own existence several, uh, the whole time. You have a, a doubting, a rebellious uh, people that have uh, have been at the streets, in the streets for the past, I don't know, a year and a half with very rightful demands. So uh, this is the time where you really need to be very transparent about every single step that you're going to do in the second licensing round. We need The, the government needs to be open in how it's going to approach it, what are the terms it's going to put the negotiations with the companies, uh, we need to move forward and make sure that we are inviting these investors uh, with the best conditions possible. But let me tell you something. The investors nowadays are not looking into working in shady countries. It's we're not looking at investors a decade ago where, you know, or two decades ago, where you would see, you, you'd, you'd look at stories like the blood diamond stories, where companies are always investing in uh, you know, shady deals in Africa. Now, the the especially I'm talking about European companies, they are pushing for more transparent atmospheres to look. They want a, a leveled play, playing ground for everybody. They are now being demanded in their home countries by laws that they work in transparent countries. It's not no longer up to Total to choose, but the, the, the laws that are governing Total in France that are mandating this. BP, the same thing. They're in their home country. They have NGOs breathing down their neck. Global Witness is, is one, uh, you know, uh, they are one of our allies on the EITI, but they they are always demanding more transparency and, and ensuring that all European com- uh, companies are working in transparent countries. So Lebanon now needs to walk the walk and talk the talk. They need to be, we need to exhibit that we have a transparent uh, atmosphere uh, and an enabling environment for these companies. Uh, this is how we can invite them, but not just superficially. We need to implement it as well, not just to act it. There should be a place where uh, civil society is invited for this discussion through public consultations, through open discussions, through uh, uh, you know government-led roundtables. Uh, th- this is this is the incubator for trust that the government needs to work on. Now, there is a political will, at least I see it with the Lebanese Petroleum Administration. I see that. But my fear is that this political will will go when uh, there is a reappointment happening or the, the culture of transparency goes with the six that are currently here. I want to hope for the best. I know that Logi will be quite loud in making sure that this remains. Uh, I'm not advocating for anybody to stay uh, from the regulatory authority or not, but I want the culture to stay. And that's, this is uh, what is very important now for them. Absolutely. Diana, I really love the direction that you took now in the last, uh, in the last points, because this is very aligned with our day to day routine in the company. Because as you know, we work in one hand with governments and then in the other hand with the private sector. And we really try to uh, feed this feedback, um, cycle from the private sector to the government. And indeed, exactly as you said, in the last year, since COVID happened and hit everyone and their budgets and their interests, the profile of the investor has changed and the, the conditions for them to invest have been changed as well uh, to become more picky in terms of transparency, open communication. So to have access to exactly more controlled and more transparent, more visible uh, less corrupted pr- procedures. So um, this is very, very important what you said. And my next question is going to be, so as we do want to develop the, the sector in Lebanon, but we do have these challenges, uh, and this applies not only to Lebanon, but to any country, right, in the same similar position, what would you advise uh, to ENP companies to yeah. bear in mind whenever they look into your licensing round or similar licensing rounds? And what do you think that they will feel that it's the pros and cons of the Lebanese hydrocarbon sector? 
For me, for, for companies, of course, I would really invite them to look at what happened and the best practices that we adopted as, as Lebanon when it came to the openness in the first licensing round. We were quite open in the, in the whole process and the adoption and the contracts that were released, inviting you know civil society, us uh, opening these platforms for discussion. This is something definitely that they uh, would be, I, I know that they are looking at fondly. I would invite them also to have themselves a more robust uh, I know that they have their own guidelines and ethical guidelines and procurement process when it comes to subcontracting. But one invitation I'd like to keep open for them is for them to do a serious due diligence when it comes to the subcontracted goods and services countries uh, to make sure that there are no PEPs, politically exposed people that are engaged. Uh, we know that the subcontracting is something that the right holder does. Uh, we know that um, the, the country or the Minister of Energy has a veto to put if uh, he sees that one subcontract uh, is, is not uh, moving in the right direction or he does not approve it. We also encourage the, the companies to ask for the reason if there is a veto on any company uh, put by the minister. And we, of course, will invite the minister to be quite public about the reasons for his veto, if there are some. Recently, we listened to, uh, to uh, you know, to, to, to a presentation by given by Fernand Dreistad, not to make any, you know, advertisement, but he's, they have an, an energy consultancy company. And uh, his hum humble opinion is that we will be looking into a super cycle again because of so many factors I will not go into now. So uh, my open invitation to companies would be don't drop the ball completely on the energy sector, on the oil and gas sector exploration, especially in Lebanon. Lebanon is a strategic country. It is strategically placed. We have some very good seismic surveys, and they know that because they have, uh, you know, capitalized and put the bet on on uh, during the first licensing round. Big consortium on on two places. Things will be definitely changing. The legal framework surrounding the oil and gas sector is pretty good. Definitely encouraging um, a lot of companies to come and submit for licensing rounds is something that I wholeheartedly would do. Uh, but at the same time, I would also invite here the Lebanese uh, government to start looking into seriously into energy transition. Uh, the world, of course, the whole world is looking now into energy transition, into renewables, into decarbonization. This is something that needs to be part of our, of our absent so far energy strategy. There has to be a serious discussion at the municipality level, level going up to the regional, sub-regional level and to the national level of what are our local demands what is the energy mix that really fits Lebanon? We have challenges currently in the electricity sector, but we are still having these factories that work, uh, electricity installations that work on fuel that is not, instead of gas. Although we have the, the installations, uh, they were prepared to be working on gas. We need to move into cleaner energy consumption. We need to look into renewables that are becoming very, uh, you know, cheaper as we speak. We can also inv involve international companies when it comes to renewables because, uh, again, going to the to the example of Total ANI and BP, uh, giving these examples because they are relevant to our context, they have now reshuffled their budget to focus on renewables. Uh, so we need to be updated on how the companies are thinking. And I think there is a golden opportunities for us here to work. We have a collapsed energy system, a sector that we are uh, rebuilding. And the perfect thing to do now, in my modest opinion, is to rebuild it with the idea of less you know, decarbonization and going into renewables. Of course, the energy sector or the oil and gas sector exploration needs to be there, but we need to manage our, our expectations as to what is it that we need to benefit or expect from the sector. Not exactly. I, I'm aligned 100%. And to this, I, I think I will just bring one more topic in, uh, just because of the maritime bar border issue, right? We still haven't really touched this, and maybe it would make sense this, just to see what is the real impact that this might have had in the round so far. Do you think that this is also something that potential investors have on their minds, or they're not really concerned about this? So, of course, as an investor, invest, yani, investors naturally would definitely always prefer to work in countries where they have resolved their maritime borders. 
uh, especially because of the most of our blocks, uh, almost all of them, with the exception of two or three, fall. Uh, they have uh, they fall uh, on on the sides, and with, uh, we don't have any maritime border now settled uh, with any of the countries surrounding us, whether it's Syria, uh, Cyprus. We have an agreement, but there is a lot of issues around this agreement. It hasn't been ratified by Parliament, and of course with our, with the with Israel, whom we are. Uh, you know, uh, it's a hostile country. It's an enemy country. Now, um, the ideal situation for us would be, of course, to have a resolution when it comes to the maritime border dispute. And uh, we were happy to see that these negotiations, the indirect ones, were back on the table or we were back uh, in line and uh, the, the fourth quarter of last year. Now they have stopped, and I'll go in a second of why they have stopped or being stalled or, or put on hold for the time being. Uh, but what we need to understand is that we have the consortium uh, that is currently um, committed through two contracts to drill in block number four and block number nine. They have signed these contracts prior to, uh, you know, while we still had these uh, uh, maritime disputes. And in, no, in, in nowhere did any of the uh, companies, uh, at least Total, that is head of the consortium, state that they are going to hold any exploration until the resolution of the maritime borders. On the contrary, when in 2018 the uh, contracts were signed, the first thing that Total said is that we're going to drill uh, 25 kilometers away from the disputed area. So there is nothing hindering them from uh, uh, from uh, drilling, except, of course, the economic meltdown that is happening. Uh, this we need to keep into consideration. So we really need to separate the oil and gas sector from all the political rhetoric that is happening in the uh, in the in the uh, uh, on the maritime border dispute. This is actually what Israel did. In the midst, in the midst of all the hold that we that we have seen, uh, they have asked Energian, the the Greek uh, uh, oil company, uh, to proceed ahead. You know, Energian took the decision to proceed. So it was a clear statement telling the whole world that you know the oil and gas sector is not tied to the maritime border. Now we need to do exactly the same. We shouldn't link them at all together. There is a maritime dispute, yes. We have uh, two approaches to it. One is called now the maximalist approach uh, that is based on very technical sound grounds saying that we have a, 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 a 2,290 uh, 2, kilometers square cumulative that we need to demand. This is our rightful uh, share or this is uh, what uh, this is Lebanon's part and it's uh, based on sound uh, technical uh, justifications. We also have the uh, uh, our older claim, which was 860 kilometers square, also based on, on uh, technical, uh, 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 you know, um, supported uh, uh, evidence or uh, let's say, uh, uh, or um, we can say, <laughs> I forgot the name, I know it's in Arabic. So let's say su supporting evidence for that. So we, we, we have for both, uh, for both approaches, there is now, uh, you know, we are we are just we put them out on the table and we are now seeing how will this really unfold and impact the negotiations now internally and i don't want to go into the very internal discussion that is happening in lebanon we're really not aligned on which uh, 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 move to or which line to adopt. Is it the maximalist approach? Is it not? not? But what we are both aligned on is that we there is a disputed area and it is Lebanon, it is for Lebanon to claim. There is definitely a pushback from Israel and this shouldn't be happening. And what we are also aligned on in Lebanon is that we are all in agreement that we are uh, uh, following the UN clause. We have we are signatories to the, the, the UN clause uh, and unlike Israel, and we are also aligned that we are following the best practices. So uh, whether it is uh, an additional 1,430 kilometers squared or the 860, there is an agreement that we need to resolve the issue. There is a piece of maritime uh, area that is taken by Israel and we need to reclaim it. Now, uh, eventually, uh, uh, we are going to go back and sit at the table. For Israel, the stakes are higher. For us, we haven't even started or made any discovery. We don't have a platform up. Uh, for Israel, the issue is takes a whole new dimension. They have platforms up. 
there is any there is a huge question mark on security that they are very well aware of companies such as Energian that are investing i believe 2.3 billion now in karish do understand that there is a big security issue so uh, you know if if i if i were the israelis i would really uh, want to go back to the negotiation table and try to resolve our issue or the, the 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 issues and and reach an agreement as soon as possible they have a lot more to lose than we have it's very true it's just that we also need to mention here that maybe there is a change in mentality that uh, also needs to to happen in order for you know both parties to sit on the negotiation table uh, from both sides as well we yes. need to it's what we were discussing Diana. we need, we need to name the neighbor the neighbor has a name absolutely absolutely no i can't agree more yes <laughs> perfect so yes. Are... this is the elephant in the room this is a reality exactly Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so in terms of, uh, I want to take it uh, a step further and talk about more the uh, EITI as we are approaching the end of the of the podcast. And it has been very, very uh, interesting to hear your thoughts. I know you're one of the most important people within the EITI because you have seen all sides of the coin. And I wanted, and again, huge fan of the organization here. Uh, we've been working with them in Albania. One of my good friends was uh, was part of the EITI in Albania, Dorina Cinari. And I've seen the work that you guys put. Ah, yes. And she's wonderful, isn't she? <laughs> Yes, amazing. <laughs> so I wanted I wanted to really um, dig into the initiative and, and understand a little bit more from your perspective. What would you say is the biggest issue you're facing uh, as an organization with the EITI? And uh, how, how can we all as a society help tackle it? That's a very important issue that sometimes, you know, keeps me thinking at night. Now, yes, the relevance of the EITI... Uh, me too. I too. I am a big fan of this uh, initiative. I, I I've been following up closely uh, with it ever since you know uh, I joined this whole thing um, 2011 and onwards. I've been um, part and parcel of unfolding it in many countries, from Papua New Guinea to Yemen to Iraq to Tunisia, uh, Philippines, Indonesia. You name it. Um, I was you know always witnessing what what the impact that it had. I have some very sad stories to tell, but also I has I have some success stories to share. And and for Lebanon, I think it's really important the EITI to unfold is not in the uh, information it will release in the report. We have a very good law. It's called Enhancing Transparency in the Oil and Gas Sector Law. That is basically a translation of the EITI into a law that now mandates all information that is demanded by the EITI and should be included in the report in the EITI report, is going to come out one way or another. So the law is there. But what is very unique about the EITI is the platform it creates through the multi-stakeholder group. This is what is currently absent in Lebanon. There is no platform where civil society is part of the discussion. They sit equally and equidistantly from from government and companies working in the sector. That's, this is the uniqueness of it. We, again, there is absence of trust. And EITI's relevance to Lebanon is that it is an incubator of trust. It is not a magic wand, by the way. It's not a magic bullet. It's not the silver bullet. Uh, it, it's uh, simply because we will join or we intend to join the EITI does not mean that we are going to become, you know, la vie en rose. We're going to trust each other. We're going to live happily ever after, skidding down the ro- ro- road, ha- holding hands. Not at all. It's the first step. It's the incubator. Now, we all need to sit there and make sure that we are talking openly about issues that are of concern. But this is the opportunity to do that. Now, this mandates a big, a big responsibility on the civil society part. We have seen EITI fail in many countries because of civil society, by the way, and I have to be very open and frank about it. Civil societies, you know, the EITI's biggest uh, or weakest link, if you look at a a, a, a study done by uh, uh, MSI Integrity, they do the, what they do in their life is just review all the multi-stakeholder formations. They released a study in 2014, whom I was, you know, had the pleasure of being part of and reviewing. 
And basically what they found that in all, and back then it was around 30 plus countries implementing EITI. Now we are, go, we are I think it was 40, now we are around 60. And they found that the weakest link in the implementation was the representation of civil society on the multi-stakeholder group. Uh, civil society would falter when it comes to choosing their own representatives. Or if they did a good job, then these representatives would forget that they are representatives representing a constituency and they had to go back to it. This is what we don't intend to happen here. This is why Lobby now is really leading all the efforts through a coalition that is made of nine like-minded organizations called the Coalition for Energy Governance. This is a publish what you pay aff affiliated coalition. We have a national coordinator, we have a steering committee, we have nine devoted members, and we, are, we have just completed the development of a constituency guideline that will basically lead us toward uh, electing in a participatory, inclusive manner, representatives to sit on the civil society, uh, uh, you know, to sit on the MSG representing civil society. And we have also developed a communication plan that will allow these representatives and basically lead them into consultative process to ensure that the voices, uh, the voice of civil society as a constituency is reflected in the multi-stakeholder uh, group that leads the EITI process in Lebanon. Uh, uh, we will be having the elections next month. It's a good process. We are, uh, you know, uh, we built the constituency guidelines to be inclusive of not just the nine members, of course, of all civil society organizations in Lebanon that have that are eligible. We put criteria that are solid enough not to allow gongos, government led NGOs to seep in but also expand enough to allow other NGOs outside the coalition to be part of the process. The whole process should be launched in March, uh, which is next month, and we are aiming at having representatives by the end of March being chosen. Once these are chosen, then uh, uh, the government will be able to call onto uh, the, uh, you know, the, the first meeting for the MSG. And I think this is where, uh, again, uh, civil society will prove that it, it's worthiness when sitting in such a, a formation. So we're, we're, all eyes are now on Lebanon. Uh, already the secretariat, the EITI secretariat is helping us through a lot of issues. We're looking at, you know, um, submitting a, a successful uh, candidature application. Wonderful. I really like what I hear, uh, Diana. Inshallah, I, I hope it all goes through and I hope it all goes well because Lebanon has a lot to give and offer uh, in, in many, many terms uh, in the energy sector. I personally, have, you know, I've heard a lot about uh, the, the potential of the country in terms of uh uh, the geology, like the below ground uh, opportunities it can offer to investors. But I think that we need to all work together to minimize the, the above ground risk and, and make it a no brainer for, for companies to come in with, a, with such a big um, below ground uh, beauty. And I think that it's everyone's, I, I would not as, as a foreigner, as a foreigner, but per, part of the industry, I would say that it, um, it's also everyone's responsibility to make sure that we, we help one way or another. Each and every country that is, is facing such issues, uh, maybe, you know, um, doing more workshops on it, raising our voice uh, towards the right direction and pushing for, for more information to be out and understanding the complexity of the situation before offering an opinion or before offering a solution. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would like to, I know where we've run out of time, but uh, Madalena, Diana, thank you so, so much for, for today's podcast. It was brilliant, brilliant. And uh, it was a great opportunity to hear more about what you guys do. I know you're everywhere. And uh, I've personally committed to, you know, whenever I can uh, to help out with uh, anything that the organization wants uh, on personal capacity. Also, you know, in VR as, uh, as a company, we're always next to you guys. So I want to leave it with a positive note, Diana. What should we leave as a, as a positive message at the end of this podcast for anyone who's interested in Lebanon? Thank you, first of all, for this uh, continued uh, support, Krisa, uh, Man, uh, uh, Madeleine, for for everything that you're doing. We are really we really appreciate your continuous outreach and your belief, at least, in what we are doing. So this is always music to our ears, and we always aim at at benefiting from best practices learned from you and from these open platforms that you have. Uh, really, the, the the best maybe. 
the, you know, uh, the, the oil and gas sector is always looked upon. One of its uh, criteria is that is volatility. And uh, I want to I want to use this now as a positive thing. You know, volatile means that there is always an ups an up and down and everything in the prices. And now, since we are in our lowest peak, I think that we should look towards a more, you know, a a a a, a, a let's say grander uh, turnout eventually. It's uh, things are very unpredictable in the oil and gas sector, but maybe this is why it is so beautiful uh, for for Lebanon. This is indeed a good opportunity. Again, it's not going to be the savior from from all our uh, uh, meltdown that is happening or or the calamities that are happening. Uh, we will have to save ourselves. We should not be depending on a sector. But the sector, once we do save ourselves and put a good reform plan and implement that reform, will be a great added value to support us in development, in, in enhancing uh, other sectors. This is how we need to look at it. We need to look at it as that thing that we will be depending on once we're out of this pit hole that we are currently in. So, and uh, I'm sure we will. Uh, the Lebanese are really resilient people, not to be cliche, but this is a fact. And uh, we have a lot of know-how, we have a lot of exposure, we have a lot of support, and we really will be uh, putting all of this to the best of our use. I am very much looking forward to seeing you again, to being in Beirut and having these wonderful chats that, that we have. I, I cannot wait for the situation to, to be over, to be frank, and, and be there uh, on the first plane I can find. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. The pleasure was all mine. <laughs> Likewise. Thank you very, very Bye. much. Bye for now, girls. Bye.